Let me say that video does not get old. I love it. It's so great. Hey, uh, during this Christmas season, we've been uh, doing this series that we're calling Unexpected. Um, the birth of Jesus uh, was really this unexpected moment in the history of the world. It brought all sorts of unexpected gifts to folks, from shepherds to the wise men to Mary and Joseph to really the whole cast of the birth of Jesus story, they all experienced the good news of Jesus in some unexpected way in their lives. And the, and the truth is that even for us today, we too, through this story, as we relive it year after year after year, we can experience the unexpected from God in this season too. Now, if you've been here on Sundays, um, We've been working our way through really the, the four, I don't know, major themes of Advent, which is the season that we're in, hope, joy, love, and peace. And if you haven't figured it out yet, today is love. Just had to check back there. Um, this morning, what we want to do is we want to spend some time uh, tackling the unexpected love that comes through the story of Christ's birth into this world. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, why don't we turn to the scriptures? Um, our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke 1, verses 11 through 25. If you have a Bible, um, please open, with it, uh, open it with me there. Uh, Luke 1, 11 through 25. And our scripture reader this morning is Dean Damore. He has graciously agreed to read for us. Dean, you can head on up whenever you're ready. And what we do here is we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you could please stand if you're able to. And then we face the center of the room where scripture is read. And we do so because this is the greatest story ever told. It is a true story. It's the story of Jesus. So Dean, take it away when you're ready. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thank you, Dean. Y'all may be seated. If you had your Bible open to that passage, I would keep it there. That's Luke 1, verses 11 through 25. Before we really dig in there, 
Um, I want to bring up a great year, the year 1998. It's one that you all remember, I can guarantee. Um, in 1998, um, the movie A Night at the Roxbury was first released on the silver screen. Now, how many of you are Night at the Roxbury fans? There should be at least a couple of you. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great film. Now, for all of you that have your hands raised, um, if you're doing the math, that movie was released 20 years ago this year, which makes everyone feel old, I think. Um, now, for those of you that have never seen the movie A Night at the Roxbury, it's a comedy featuring uh, Will Ferrell and Chris Catan, both of the SNL guys. And in the movie, Will and Chris Catan's character are on the prowl for love, and they have somehow come to believe in the story that the place that they're going to find that true love is only in the hottest nightclubs in the city. You can see that it's going to go well. And so every night, Will Ferrell and Chris Catan's characters put on their fanciest, coolest purple suits, and they put gobs of hair gel in their hair, and they put on the cheapest male cologne money can buy, and they head out to the club, and they'd search for love. And of course, in the film, it almost never goes well for them. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the film, perhaps uh, the thing you're most familiar with is not necessarily the story, but it's a song that came along with the movie. Anyone know the song? Okay. Now, that song, when it would play in the movie, something would happen. And I want to see how many of you know what that something is. It's going to be exciting. Um, we're actually going to play a part of the song and just see what happens. So go ahead. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. This no is so more. great. song What is Love by the singer that I've never heard of. His name is Hadaway. Just know the song. But each time that song would play, um, uh, Will Ferrell and Chris Catan's head would begin bobbing from right to left. There's a point where he actually breaks a window in his car doing that because that's the dance move. Every single time that song is played, I cannot help but do that with my head. Maybe that's true for you too. Now, I bring up this ridiculous 90s movie because I think this movie paints a picture for how confused many of us are today with the idea of love. We, as a culture, are lost when we think of love. Love is confusing. It's ambiguous. We're really not sure what it means. And we can all agree that A Night at the Roxbury probably doesn't get this idea of love down very well. We can agree on that. But I would argue that most of us struggle to actually understand what this thing called love is. If, if we were to do an experiment this morning, and I was to have you turn to your neighbor, and then to share what you think your best definition of love is, one, that would be awkward if it's not your spouse, but two, but two, um, we would probably come up with hundreds of different definitions for what love is, because love is confusing and difficult to understand. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think it's even more true by the genders. Male and female, we tend to understand love differently, I think. This is just my observation here. But I'm guessing 
that at least some of the guys walked in the room this morning and they glanced up at the stage here and they saw these letters, these massive letters spelling out love and they went, oh boy, here we go. And you're not, maybe as a guy, you're not looking forward to hearing anything about love. And that would be because in our culture, this is my observation, it seems to be that love is kind of a, I don't know, girly thing. It's feminine in our culture for many, many people. If you fellas in the room, you were at work, and then someone came up to you and said, hey, Steve, how are you? You're kind of lovey-dovey today. That would be awkward for basically everyone. Guys don't want to be called lovey-dovey. That's a girly thing. We are tougher than that or something like that. Love is the word that women have in pink on their clothing in weird places, right? Like that's what love is for guys. And guys would never have love on their clothing and specifically not in those places because that's just strange, we think. There is this phenomenon um, the last couple years around Christmas where these low-budget, terrible movies are out. Um, I think they're called Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> How many of you are fans? Basically, every woman's hand went up in the room. I'm just saying. I didn't see any guys. And us guys, we love our spouses, and so we will endure those movies, and we'll endure those movies with our kids and all that stuff. We do not like those movies, at least externally. The Secret's Out, we kind of like them too. They're great movies. Now, so love for guys tends to be a kind of feminine thing, but then there's the women's side, right? Women view love differently too. And now, as you can tell, I'm not a woman, so I... I'm really guessing here, but I'm doing my best. I watch a lot of TV, so I think I can do this. Um, but for women, love tends to be something, I don't know, that women are supposed to crave in culture, right? In our culture, as a woman, you're supposed to crave love. So our culture says love tends to be, for women in our culture, this thing that is to be desired, and they're looking to receive it from some other place. And so women actually have phrases to talk about this. You hear it all the time, like, I'm looking for love is a phrase that you'll hear. Or when there's a breakup, he just doesn't love me the way that I desire to be loved is a phrase you might hear. Or I just can't seem to find love with the idea that love is this thing in the world and it's hidden and you have to go out and try to find this thing called love that's hidden and when you find it then you can receive this great thing called love, right? And then if you kind of zoom out beyond genders, just people as a whole, the way we tend to understand love in our culture today is that love is this romantic thing primarily in our culture, right? We fall in love. Love is this thing that happens between a man and a woman. Love is, there's this other kind of love, this thing where you like love your kids or your parents and things like that, but it's like a secondary kind of love in our culture. Love is primarily this thing that happens, you know, you fall in love. It's the Greek word in the Bible, eros love. It's romantic love. That's what love in our culture is. But there's a, better understanding of love than all of these things. And that better understanding of love 
is found in this book. And it's found in this season, this Christmas season. And what I want to do is I want to dive into our scripture reading this morning because you will find what love really is when we dig down deep enough into this story. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 1 verses 11 through 25 because we're going to talk about this for a little bit. See, the story this morning, it's not the story of the birth of Jesus. It's the story of the birth of Jesus' cousin, his cousin, uh, John the Baptist. And our scripture reading this morning is really, it's about John the Baptist's dad. Now, John the Baptist's dad's name was Zechariah. And the scriptures say that Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And what the priests would apparently do is they would work kind of in these swing shifts where there'd be a group of priests. They'd go and they'd work at the temple. And then when they were finished, a new group would join. And then when that group was finished, a new group would join. And on and on and on. And our scripture reading this morning captures the moment where Zechariah was called to do his priestly duties, but something special was happening for him. This would be the highlight of Zechariah's career. You see, Zechariah was chosen during one of his priestly shifts to go offer incense to the Lord. Now, historians guess that there was something like maybe 18,000 priests working in the temple complex in this day, 18,000. And this burning of incense thing, it happened two times a day in the morning and then it would happen again at night. And if you do the math, most priests working in the temple at this day would have the opportunity to offer incense to the Lord only once in their career. And so this moment, for Zechariah was a very big deal. Now, I want to put up a picture of the temple on the screen. It's kind of a basic picture, but it will be good enough. Here's just kind of a basic uh, kind of outlay of the temple. And if you look on your right, you see this little box that says Holy of Holies, right? You see that. And if you look to your left, you see another box and it says Burnt Offering Altar. There was another altar. It was called the Golden Altar. And that altar would be found right outside the Holy of Holies. And so what this meant for Zechariah as he was going to go to this golden altar, he was going to go offer an incense to the Lord, and he was going to do it just mere inches and feet from God. Because Jews believed in the Holy of Holies, that's where God most dwelled in the world. It's kind of amazing. It must have been terrifying for Zechariah at that time. And so Zechariah, he shows up one day at the temple and he goes all the way in, right outside the Holy of Holies. There would be the altar, and then there would be just this fabric kind of flap right in front of the Holy of Holies. It was the closest he would ever get to God, probably in his entire life. He was excited. He was terrified. It was an amazing moment for him. And then what he would do is he would wait. And he'd stand there, and he'd wait. And he'd stand there, and he'd wait, and he would be listening. Because what historians um, believe is that as these people would wait to offer their incense, they'd be waiting for a bell to be rung. He'd be listening for a bell, and that bell, when it was rung, meant that at the burnt offering altar, the burnt offering had taken place, and then he could offer his incense. And so that's exactly what Zechariah does. But then something weird and unexpected happens. 
You see, suddenly, an angel of the Lord shows up right in his very presence as he's just feet away from where God would dwell. And this matters because for some of us, perhaps if an angel of the Lord showed up, you'd think that's pretty cool. For Zechariah, that was pretty scary because Zechariah probably was thinking, oh no, an angel of the Lord showed up. I must have done something wrong. I must not have had my heart in the right place. Something must have been off about how I offered this sacrifice of incense. Perhaps, perhaps I wasn't ritually clean enough and this angel's coming and this will be my last moment on earth. This angel will strike me down right here at the high point of my life. This is how I die. However, the angel says something truly unexpected to him. And we read about that in Luke 1, verses 13 through 17, if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and to disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah hears this. And then he does exactly what every other person in the Bible does when an angel seems to show up. He doubts it. And so Gabriel, the angel, silences him. You shall not speak until your son is born. You will speak again, Zechariah, when your son, John, speaks his first words. That's when you will get your voice back. It's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? It's an amazing story story. And as we're going through this, you might be thinking, okay, um, love, 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 love. I'm not seeing it in this story, but it's there. It is. We just have to look closely enough to find it. Turn to verses 16 and 17 of our scripture reading. It's what the angel Gabriel says about John the Baptist. He says, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Gabriel, the angel, had a lot to say here. And we could spend probably a whole series unpacking just these two verses. But we need to just go a little deeper here. It's in verse 17. Gabriel says a very important phrase. He says of John the Baptist, he will go on before the Lord and he will... Turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And that phrase in the Bible is a huge deal. That phrase, if you were a Jew living 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus' birth, you would have known that phrase before. It's an important phrase. In fact, that phrase is found in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not just found in the Old Testament. It's found if you open your Old Testament and you turn to the last page of the Old Testament. It is the last two verses found in the Old Testament. If you turn to Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, it's just right before Matthew. Just go ahead and turn there a second. 
this is what it says. This is uh, what Malachi says as he's bringing the word of the Lord. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It's literally the final prophecy of the Old Testament that we have in our hands, the final one. And what's amazing about it is it's the first prophecy, it's the last prophecy of the Old Testament, it's the first prophecy of the New Testament to come to pass. Now, there's a reason that Luke would use this passage. The first is obvious, right? It's about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the new Elijah, right? Like that's a huge deal. Luke needed that to be said, but there's more going on here. A lot more going on here. You see, the phrase, turning hearts, is actually found all over the place in the Bible. And it's a roundabout way of saying the word repent. It's the same thing, to repent. It's why later in John the Baptist's ministry in the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist continually would implore the people to repent. Uh, Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And repentance, this turning of hearts, is an incredible image of love. That is what it is. You see, repentance, repentance is actually a physical movement in, in, in Hebrew. If you're walking in one direction, um, repentance would actually mean that you actually physically do a 180 with your body and you head back in the other direction. That's actually what repentance means. But, but it's, it's more than that in this passage. Repentance isn't just about physically turning around. Repentance is about emotionally turning around. Repentance is about turning our hearts around, which is a huge deal. Repentance is the moment when, when we have wronged somebody and then we come to realize that we've wronged somebody and then it makes us feel something because we wronged somebody and so we turn and we turn our emotions and we turn our hearts and we turn our bodies and we go and make that wrong a right again because we care about that person. Repentance is turning our hearts around and we do so because we care for others. We care for people's well-being. We wouldn't want to be the source of hardship for that person. Have you ever had a moment where someone has treated you really badly? And it's maybe a friend or someone that's close to you, and there's this moment where this person treats you badly, and you're like, just thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not sure what's going on here. Maybe did I say something? Did I, did I do something to hurt their feelings? Like, what did I do? And you just are racking your brain, and you can't figure out what in the world is going on. Why is this person treating me this way? And perhaps you go, right? And you go and talk to the person and say, hey, what, what's going on? And then the person blows up at you, right? And blows up and then maybe says some things they shouldn't say to you. And then you walk away and you're perhaps even more confused than you were before. And then time passes. Maybe it's hours. Maybe it's days. Maybe it's months. Or for some of us, it's even years where these kind of things happen. And then that person that wronged us comes back and they say they're sorry 
And then they go on and they share just how valuable that you are to that person and how much you matter to that person. That is what repentance looks like. And the only reason people would do something like that, the only reason people are motivated to repent is because of love. It's because of love. Repentance is a great picture of love. Love is a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. Love is a feeling that prompts a person to go out from their ways, uh, out of their way to make a wrong a right again. And here's the deal, folks. In this Christmas season, John the Baptist comes to us, even in this room, in the words of Scripture, and implores us to love. And he says, you love by turning around. You love by turning your hearts around, by remembering that we are loved by God, to remember that we are to try to love every other person in our lives, the people we meet, and perhaps even the people that we don't, to love our families at the Christmas parties that we're about to go to, which for some of us is actually not that easy. Right? For some of us. So Malachi 4.6 says, He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And what Malachi is getting at is that there is so much dysfunction in families, apparently, in these Hebrew families where moms and dads are ashamed of their kids for the way that they're behaving, perhaps for their spirituality, for their faith. And then vice versa happens where kids look up to their parents and they are just angry and resentful and the relationships are all broken. The kids were ashamed of their moms and dads. And Luke mentions this in our scripture reading for a reason. Because at Christmas, our dysfunction our dysfunctional families can now become functional again because the birth of Jesus is God's declaration to all of us that God was going to end all those conflicts and he was going to start with the conflict between us and God. You see, God sends Jesus into the world at Christmas to end our conflict with God and to make sure that we are loved by God. God wants us to remember that we're still a part of the family. That's why Jesus came. You see, love is not just a feeling or a romantic relationship or this thing that we're supposed to receive. It's bigger than that. It's what uh, 1 John 4.10 says. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the simplest reading here for that is this. Whether you are living in sin and shame, whether you're clean, living a cleaned up life or a messed up life, whether your family is close or whether your family is distant, whether your society that you live in is godly or whether it's godless, you are still a part of God's family, right? God still loves you. And Jesus' birth is the proof. The Christmas story is God proclaiming to you and me that we are still a part of God's family. And Jesus would be willing to wrap himself up in human flesh for 33 and a half years to thoroughly drive the point home. Christmas is the season where we're, where we're reminded, no matter where we're at, that we are family because God loves us. It's also the season where we go out and remind others that they're family too, that they're a part of God's family 
that they're a part of your family. And uh, after the service, maybe like an hour after, I'm going to get in a car with my family and we're going to drive to Salt Lake City. And tomorrow morning, well, hopefully if we get there, tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to fly out to Michigan where my family lives. And one of the things on the agenda while I'm there this year is to visit with my dad. And I haven't seen my dad in probably five years. We just talked for the first time um, just a couple weeks ago. And I'm going to go, and my whole idea, if it works, if it works, is to remind him that he's still part of the family. He's still part of the family. He's still part of my family. He's still part of God's family. What about for you? Who do you need to give a little love to this season? Who do you need to remind that they're still part of the family? Who is that for you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love in this season. God, we thank you that you'd send your son to become one of us to show us that we're all sons and daughters. God, we thank you for that that we're part of the family. You've shown us really what love looks like. It's that we belong whether we deserve it or not. God, that's love. God, we ask that you use us in this season um, to heal brokenness, heal broken relationships, show others that they're a part of the family too, God, that they are a part of our lives in meaningful ways sometimes, um, whether they deserve it or not, God. That's the unexpected good news of your love, and we thank you for it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God this Christmas week fill you up with his love so that it pours out all over those around you this Christmas season, whether it be your family or your friends or whoever it may be. And it's all for the glory of God. Amen.